Okay, brothers and sisters, praise be to our loving Father that we are gathered to study his words. Our study for today is writing on the wall, which is basically Daniel chapter 5. So we left off last week with Nebuchadnezzar, how he was humbled by Yahuwah, and because of his humility, of his humility, learning humility from what Yahusha did to him, he ended up praising our loving father. So when we go back to the book of Daniel chapter 4, what we find from Daniel 4.1 all the way to 37 is actually an autobiography of Nebuchadnezzar stating what Yahuwah Abba did for him, how he was humbled, and in that place of humility, he learned to praise and to worship the living God. So in the end of the book of Daniel, we find verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. So from a place of humility, Nebuchadnezzar was converted. He worshiped the living God of heaven. So that's the last we hear from Nebuchadnezzar, because when we go to chapter five, we no longer, it's no longer Nebuchadnezzar who is the king. So eventually, after this episode, we know that Nebuchadnezzar eventually dies. However, he did have a good, as a matter of fact, a great ending in his illustrious career. And so after Nebuchadnezzar dies, who takes over his throne? According to the Bible and also secular texts, we find that Nebuchadnezzar was eventually succeeded by his son. His name was Evil Merodach. It's a nice name, right? Evil Merodach. And Evil Merodach was actually killed, murdered by his brother-in-law, uh, Neriglisar. So he becomes king. And then the one who took over after him was Labashi Marduk, which was his youngest son. And then after that, it, he was succeeded by Nabonidus. And so Nabonidus was a king of Babylon. But according to biblical texts and also extra biblical texts, for example, in a cylinder, cuneiform tablets as well, we find that Nabonidus had a son. And we know that from the cylinder of Sipar, which is today displayed in the British Museum, we find the following transcription. As for me, the Bonidus, king of Babylon, save me from sinning against your great godhead and grant me a present, a lifelong of days. And as for Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, instill reverence for your great godhead. It turns out that Nabonidus had a son. His name is Belshazzar. Belshazzar acted as a co-king. He was a co-regent, and he was assigned Babylon. So the direct administrator of Babylon was not Nabonidus himself, but his son, Belshazzar. This is why when we pick up in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, many years later, after the days of Nebuchadnezzar, this is what we find. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And so this king, Belshazzar, he was a party kind of guy. The young king, he was enjoying the palace life. He was enjoying Babylon. And so he likes to throw parties. This was a grand party 
a thousand of his nobles were with him. Can you imagine how large the banquet table must have been enjoying great wine and meat? This is the kind of lifestyle he adopted. He was a party person and he drank lots of wine. He was known for his dissipation. He liked to, he liked to have great festivities because he wanted to honor himself and his kingdom. And perhaps the reason why is because when he looked around him, he saw greatness. He saw the majesty of Babylon because according to historians, people who witness the building of Babylon, ancient Babylon, were astounded by its beauty. It was called the most beautiful place on earth, a city made of gold. This is an artist's depiction of ancient Babylon. It does look very significant, right? And there are many artifacts found in the city of Babylon. And so the party was taking place right there at the king's palace. While the party was taking place, it turns out an upcoming kingdom, Persia, was actually planning to overthrow the Babylonian Empire. However, um, Belshazzar, the king, he did not care about that. He knew about the Persian uh, army. He knew about what they were intending to do. However, it did not bother him. You know what that's called? It's called pride, right? When you're not concerned about your enemies because you think too highly of yourself. Now, why was the king thinking so much and thinking so highly about himself and his kingdom? Well, part of the reason is because of the kind of protection that the city of Babylon enjoyed. According to historians, the outer walls were 17 miles long. These walls were 22 feet thick, 90 feet high. The outer walls also had guard towers, another 100 feet high. They also had city gates made of bronze. And they had a system of inner and outer walls and moats, which made the city very secure. And so he was self-confident. He placed his hope in his great city and the walls that surrounded his great city, not to mention the gates like this one, the Ishtar Gate, which made enemy forces really have to think twice because they could not penetrate these gates and these walls. And so he felt protected. And so even though he knew there was a Persian army that was, that was conquering other nations left and right. He was not concerned about his own kingdom. And so we find this scene of partying while a hostile army surrounded the city. Doesn't this remind you of the spirit of our present age? I mean, take a look at what's happening in the world today, right? You have COVID, you have natural disasters, volcanic eruptions, you have earthquakes, you have the economic collapse. So many people today who don't even care about what's happening. All they care about is themselves having a party, right? That was that's the spirit of our generation today. That's the spirit of King Belshazzar during the days of Babylon. And so he was partying. Not only was he partying because of his pride, what did he also do? Daniel 5, 2 down to 3. Well, Belshazzar was drinking the wine. He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. 
So they brought these gold cups from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. Because of his pride, this uh, king, Belshazzar, what did he do? Well, while he was drinking wine, perhaps he was drunk. He gave instructions to get the silver and gold cups. What were these silver and gold cups? They were parts of the temple in Jerusalem. And so they were set apart. They were sacred. They were used for worship, worshiping Yahuwah. However, he desecrated them. He had them brought to his place of partying, and he had his concubines drink from them. He desecrated the temple. That was a bad thing to do. The one thing you, the one thing we must never ever do is to desecrate the temple, to desecrate the people of God. We don't want to do that. But that's what he did. This uh, Belshazzar. What also did he do? That wasn't enough for him. Daniel chapter 5 verse 4, while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So not only did he defy Yahuwah Abba by desecrating the things of the temple, he also praised false gods, the idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So we can see that because of the pride of Belshazzar, not only did he think too highly of himself, too highly of his kingdom, he defied the living God. You see, this is what happens when we have pride. Pride and idolatry, it blinds us so that we don't see the danger at present, ever-present danger, that threatens to destroy us. And so this is what happened to Belshazzar. And so while he was having a good time, while he was partying, what happened next? Let's read five to six. Suddenly, they saw the fingers of a human hand. Take note, this, is, this was just the hand. There was no humanoid, just the hand. I don't know if you can imagine watching a hand. This hand that appears out of nowhere. And this is what he saw suddenly. There was a hand. And this hand was riding on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote. And his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear. And his legs gave way beneath him. And so I guess that stopped the party. Yahuwah God kind of ruined the party by displaying a, a hand, a human hand, and the human hand began to write on the wall. What would you do if you saw something like that? You probably will turn pale white. Well, that's exactly what happened to this uh, arrogant king. He was so frightened, the Bible says his knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. His legs became like jelly. Have you ever felt fear like that before? Have you ever seen a ghostly figure before? And so he probably screamed, right? Because he saw the human hand drawing something or writing something on the wall. This is why the topic of our studies today is the writing on the wall. This is where we get the idiomatic English expression from, the writing on the wall, right? Have you heard about that idiom before? This is where it comes from. What does it mean? Well, let's continue. So when he sees the writing on the wall, what does he do? Let's read verse 7. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. 
He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means, will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And so in his fright, because he was afraid, didn't know what to do, he shouted uh, for the enchanters, the astrologers, the fortune tellers, his so-called advisors, his wise men, to explain to him what was happening, because nothing like this has ever been experienced by the king. So he wanted to know what this was all about. And to whoever is able to let him understand the meaning of what has been written, he gave a grand promise. What was that promise? He will be honored with purple robes, and he will be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why third? Why third highest ruler? Who's the first? Nabonidus. Who's number two? The son. What's his name? Belshazzar. And so number three would be the person who can tell him the meaning of the writing on the wall. This is why he says the third highest ruler, second only to him, to Belshazzar, because he was the acting king in Babylon. And so he, here comes his wise men, and they look at the wall, and they see strange writing. Perhaps it was in Paleo-Hebrew. They see letters, and they see um, the sentences, but were they able to understand what it meant? Daniel 5, 8 to 9 but when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. And so when his wise men looked at the wall and examined the writing on the wall, none of them could understand what it meant. And so this alarmed the king even more. And so he was already afraid. Now he's doubly afraid. He doesn't know what to do. He felt desperate. And while this is taking place, perhaps some of you are asking, well, why didn't he ask Daniel, right? Why did he not ask Daniel? Well, that's because Daniel was no longer serving this king. He was not part of the new advisors. Remember, Daniel was part of Nebuchadnezzar's council of elders. He was one of the advisors for King Nebuchadnezzar. However, this is a new administration. And so he was no longer part of this new administration. Perhaps he was semi-retired because during this time he was about 80 years old or so. And so maybe he still had uh, a, a job in the kingdom, but not as pronounced or prominent as during the days of King Nebuchadnezzar where he served with the king's uh, council. Okay, so... He was probably forgotten because he was part of the old guard. This is the new guard now. This is the new uh, administration. And so Daniel is not even remembered here. And that's why nobody sought for Daniel. Except for one person. Who was that? Daniel 5, uh, 10 down to 12. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. So there's this queen mother. And apparently she wasn't in the party because when she found out about the commotion, about the panic, she went to the banquet hall. So she wasn't in the banquet hall to begin with. She wasn't in the party, right? And so there's this queen mother and she says, uh, she said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale 
been frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who, uh, who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, take note, he uses the name Daniel. This tells us he probably had a close affinity to Daniel. He probably knew him in person. Could be. Uh, this man, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, had exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. And so the kingdom, uh, the council, the people, the, the wise men who served the king, King uh, Belshazzar, they don't know who Daniel is, right? And so it's a good thing there was this queen mother, and there's reason to believe this queen mother is Amethyst, the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. She would be Belshazzar's grandmother. She was probably the, one of the remaining members of the old guard together with Daniel. So they knew each other because they served together during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So she's a widow now. And so she's telling uh, Belshazzar, her grandson, look, when your, gr your grandfather was the king, Daniel was the one who helped him out immensely. You should call for this man, Daniel. And so that's what the king does in Daniel 5, 13, 16. So Daniel was brought in before the king. The king asked him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they cannot do it. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal, royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And so when Daniel was summoned, the king tells him, are you Daniel that I heard so much about, a person who can solve difficult problems? If we still remember how Daniel's career in Babylon started, it began with a difficult situation, right? I mean, that's how he got promoted, because of a difficult situation. And so here's another difficult situation that Daniel is in, and actually it's a difficult situation for the king. And for the people of God, difficult situations are opportunities to really see the power of God at work. And so when this difficult situation presented itself, Daniel was summoned, and the king tells him, if you can help me solve this problem, I'm going to make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Not only that, I'm going to give you a purple robe. <laughs> how many here want a purple robe? <laughs> I wonder how Daniel felt when he was offered this. What did Daniel say after being offered this precious gift and this opportunity to serve as the third highest ruler in the kingdom? Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts. <laughs> I don't want your gifts. Or you can give them to someone else, but I will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel does not want any part of it. He doesn't want the gifts. 
But he says, I'm going to tell you what the writing means. So he knows what the writing actually means. I wonder what it meant. But before he tells the king what the writing meant, what did he do first? What do you think Daniel's going to do? He's going to give glory to who? Yahuwah, right? I mean, that's what he always does. The first thing he does, no matter what problem he faces, is to recognize the work of Yahuwah Allahim. So he's going to give glory to God, and he's going to give a sermon uh, to the king. Can you imagine a servant giving a sermon to the king? <laughs> because Daniel was no ordinary person. He was a servant to Yahuwah. When you're a servant to Yahuwah, it doesn't matter who you're facing here on earth. What you have to say matters. Because the message that we have is the message of Yahuwah Abba. That's what Daniel had. And so when he was giving a message to the king, before he spoke to the king and told him what it meant, this writing on the wall, what did he say to the king? Daniel 5, 18 to 19, your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that the people of all races and nations and languages tremble before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. So he told the king, look, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a great king. He had power and authority. However, Yahuwah Abba was the one who gave him sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor. So the one thing we must never, ever forget, brethren, is no matter what, we are able to do, no matter how small, how great, we have to always recognize everything that we're able to do is because of who? Yahuwah. That's the first message. That's the first lecture that Daniel gave to the king. You have to recognize the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge of all things. Everything that you're able to do, you're able to do not because of you, but because Yahuwah allows you to do it. That's the first thing and the first lesson we need to understand. Because it applies also to us today, right? Everything happening in the world today, God knows about. He knows everything we think about. He knows every choices that we make. And so when it comes to the choices we make in our life, may it reflect that we understand Yahuwah Abba is in charge of all things. And so Nebuchadnezzar's power and authority, he said, that came from God. It did not come from him. And what was the proof? That the power and authority of Nebuchadnezzar did not come from him, but from God. Daniel kept on going. He said in 2021. But when his heart, Nebuchadnezzar, when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with dew of heaven. Until he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. And so what also did Daniel teach uh, Belshazzar about? He told him that when Nebuchadnezzar became proud in heart and mind, what did he do? He humbled him. And once he learned that the most high God rules over the kingdoms. That's when he was appointed again to finish out the rest of his career as the ruler of Babylon. And so he was teaching um, this king, Belshazzar, about humility. 
and the problem of pride. Pride leads to destruction, something we need to understand as people of God today. We must be humble. We have to reject pride. After he says this, what does he tell? What does he say to Belshazzar? 22 to 23. You are his successor, O Belshazzar. You knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself. Can you imagine speaking like that to the king? I mean, Daniel really had conviction, right? He had courage. I think we need to have the same courage that Daniel has when we know it is Yahuwah's will, when we know it's about praising God, we should be bold to be able to make bold statements like this. He confronted the king and said, you know all this, king? You know all about Nebuchadnezzar, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied Yahuwah of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored a God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. And so after giving him a brief history lesson concerning his ancestor, his grandfather, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he then confronts him and says, you did not humble yourself. You did not learn what Nebuchadnezzar learned. Instead, you became proud. And in your pride, he did two things that really caused God to be angry. Hence, the writing on the wall. What were the two things that the Bible highlighted that really, really upset Yahuwah? This is why Daniel made, made sure to point them out. What were the two things that he did to defy Yahuwah of heaven? What were the two things? <laughs> Bible says he had these cups from his temple brought before him. He desecrated the temple, right? That's number one. What else? He praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That is the sin of idolatry. And so the two things that uh, Daniel highlighted that, this, that uh, Belshazzar displayed as proof that he defied the living God. Number one, he desecrated the temple. And number two, sin of idolatry. You worship false gods. He even caused people to worship himself. And so as people of God today, especially those who are leaders, those who are spiritual leaders, we must make sure that the people who listen to our teaching, we should never, ever lead them to desecrate the temple or to desecrate the people of God. Because today, the temple of God pertains to what? The body of Christ, right? And so as spiritual leaders, people who preach from the gospel or preach, preach from the Bible, we have to make sure that we don't lead people to idolatry and to desecrating the temple. There are some people today, some religious leaders today who say that, can you imagine this? The Sabbath is an abomination. They say that. They say things like you don't need to obey the commandments of God. And so in a way, they're kind of desecrating the temple, right? And how else? does one end up desecrating the temple or desecrating the worship of God? Leviticus 21, before we continue with the story of Daniel, he must not enter a place where there is a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother. This passage refers to the high priest because the high priest is to serve every day on behalf of the people of God 
in the tabernacle, he needs to make sure that he's always clean. Because back then, if you were to be in the vicinity of a dead body, for example, in the same room at, with a dead body, you were unclean for seven days. And so you could not serve in the temple for seven days. So the high priest, he could not be in the same room, even with a relative, father or mother, because that would desecrate him and make him virtually unusable as a high priest, a servant of God for, on behalf of the people. What else? Number six, six to seven, all the days that he separates himself to Yahuwah, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation of God is on his head. Now, number six, six to seven pertains to the Nazarite vow. Because during the days of Israel, if a person really wanted to be holy before God, um, there's something he can do. He can make the Nazarite vow. And so not only is he set apart, he is set apart among those who are set apart. And so he's taking extra steps to holiness. He really wants to be close to Yahuwah Abba. And to do this, he had to separate himself to Yahuwah and to preserve that relationship of closeness to Yahuwah he cannot go near to a dead body. You know what this tells us? This tells us when it comes to worshiping God, we cannot mix life and death, right? This is why even today, if we have a place of worship, there should not be a dead body around. If in the place of worship, for example, a temple, right? And you have a worship service and at the corner somewhere is a corpse or a dead body, that's desecrating the people of God. We must not do that as people of God, because if we do that, we're breaking the spirit of the law of God. And even Yahusha says this in the book of Luke 20, 38, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And so if we gather people together for worship, it should be in a place where there's no dead body inside. You get it? <laughs> what else? Was he guilty of idolatry? You know, how, a per, how can a person even today be guilty of idolatry? Because a person might say, well, I'll never bow down to an image or to a statue. But uh, Yahuwah has this to say in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am Yahuwah. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So when a religious leader accepts praise from the people he leads, that is a form of idolatry. Apostle Paul, when people wanted to worship and bow down to him, what was his reaction? He tore his clothes and he said, do not do that. I am but a man. You must not worship me. And so if a person receives adoration, that is outside the boundaries of what is allowed. When a person receives glory, it belongs to Yahuwah. That also is idolatry. And so Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was guilty of, number one, desecrating the temple. Number two, idolatry. And so what happened? What happened because of this? And so the Bible says the writing on the wall is what happened. The writing on the wall. Now, what was the writing on the wall about? What was the message that was written on the wall by this hand without a body? Let's read 5, 24 to 28. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is what these words mean. Mene means number. God has numbered the days 
of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And so when Daniel explained to the king the meaning of the writing on the wall, was it good news or bad news? Bad news. This, this is uh, why we get the idiom, the English idiom. Um, they, they saw the writing on the wall to mean your job is about to be terminated or you're, gonna, you're about to be terminated. It's the end of something. That's what it means because the king is about to be terminated at this point. What's the meaning of the writing on the wall? Mene, mene, tekel, and parsi. Mene means what? Numbered. This is where all, we also get the idiom, your days are numbered. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means you're about to you know, be gone. <laughs> God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. And so when Yahuwah was looking at the king, Yahuwah using his standard says, you know what? This king is not doing his job. He's really, really not deserving of his position. And so when it comes to God's standard, using the balances, he does not measure up at all. Okay. And so what is his decree? Parsi means divided. His kingdom is to be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So that's the writing on the wall. It's basically a warning that his time is up. And that's the message we don't want to hear from God, right? I mean, what if we saw the writing on the wall? Well, we don't want to see the writing on the wall. We don't want Yahuwah God to say to us, you know, enough is enough. I've given you many chances to repent, but enough is enough. We don't want that. But it could happen if we don't learn the lesson from Daniel. This is why we have to learn the message from Daniel. We don't want Yahuwah God to say us enough is enough. Your days are numbered. I have weighed you and you're going to be destroyed. We don't want Yahuwah God to say that to us. And so that's the meaning of the writing on the wall. And after receiving this message from Daniel, what does the king do? Daniel 5.29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This is why, even though Daniel was semi-retired, even though he was already elderly, he was old already in age, he was still given this position as administrator. This is why many of the many people were jealous of Daniel. And when Persia eventually comes, and the leaders of Persia, Cyrus, for example, meets Daniel, Daniel gives him the prophet, uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and so on and so forth, Daniel remained in position. And so even though there was a transfer of power, Daniel remained in a high position. And so what does, what happens to Belshazzar after this? In 530 to 31, that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And so the writing on the wall did not give Belshazzar the opportunity to repent, right? You notice the difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar? 
with Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps in Yahuwah's mind, after weighing Nebuchadnezzar, he still had an opportunity to repent. When it comes to Belshazzar, no more opportunity to repent. This is why we don't want to receive that writing on the wall. If we still have the opportunity to repent, brethren, let us repent. Because time might come and God will say enough is enough. We don't want that. And so Belshazzar, that same night, was killed. And so who takes over Babylon? The Persians and the Medes under Cyrus. But it says here, Darius. Well, who was Darius? Darius was a sub-king under Cyrus the Persian. He is referred to in secular history as Gubaru. But the one instrumental in conquering Babylon was who? Cyrus. And Cyrus happens to be a, uh, one of the leaders of the empires who was actually mentioned by name in prophecy, right? And so Cyrus became the instrument that caused the downfall of Babylon. And how did Cyrus do this? How did Cyrus conquer Babylon? Remember, their kingdom was impenetrable. Remember all those walls, all those gates, the moat, the river? It was surrounded by protection. I mean, it was insurmountable. How did they do it? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at one of the writings of uh, the ancient historian. His name is Herodotus. He was known for his works of history, known for his reliability of information. Uh, according to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus, he relates that the Persian king Cyrus conquered Babylon by diverting the flow of the, the Euphrates into a nearby swamp. This lowered the level of the river so his troops marched through the water and under the river gates. They still would not have been able to enter had not the bronze gates of the inner walls had been left inexplicably unlocked. So they were able to go through the outer walls by draining the river. But there were still the inner walls, right? Outer walls, inner walls. They got through the outer wall. The inner wall was a problem. But for some reason, the Bible says the gates of the inner walls were unlocked. I wonder who unlocked it. <laughs> who do you think unlocked the gates? Well, let's go ahead and read Isaiah 45, 1 to 2. This is what Yahuwah says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. Who do you think was responsible for unlocking those gates? I think it's Yahuwah. And this is a prophecy from Isaiah. 150 years before Cyrus was born, Isaiah was speaking about what Cyrus is going to do. This is why when... Uh, Daniel gave him a copy of the book of Isaiah. He was astounded. That's why Daniel remained the advisor, an administrator during the days of Persia, Persia's conquest over Babylon because of the prophet Isaiah. 150 years before Cyrus was born, his name was, even, was already mentioned. This was truly moving to, to Cyrus. It wasn't only Isaiah, though. Even the prophet Jeremiah said something about this. And uh, Jeremiah 51, 57, 58, I will make her officials and wise men drunk. Maybe that's really the root cause. They were drunk, 
right? Because they were in party mode. Everyone in the kingdom was drunk that night. Her governor's officers and warriors as well. They will sleep forever and not awake, declares the king, whose name is Yahuwah Almighty. This is what Yahuwah Almighty says. Babylon's thick wall will be leveled and her high gates set on fire. The peoples exhaust themselves for nothing. The nation's labor is only fuel for the flames. And so according to the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the walls, the gates would be unlocked. The, the, the walls would be leveled because you know they will be given to drunkenness because of that perhaps that's the reason why the gates were unlocked and so it gave the opportunity for the persians to come and level babylon without even fighting and so cyrus was able to conquer babylon without destroying babylon he walked in and took over this is why historians tell us when cyrus was king of babylon most of the people in Babylon did not even know. <laughs> That's how low level this takeover was. It wasn't like a war that took place. There was no battle that ensued because they were given over to their dissipation. And what brought this on to Babylon? It was, again, desecration of the temple and idolatry. So they, so they saw the writing on the wall. And so, brethren, today we have to be wary of desecrating the temple. We have to be wary of idolatry. We don't want anything um, to cause us to have Yahuwah God to write on the wall saying that our relationship with him has been already severed. Now, I'm going to show you here um, a cylinder, and it has the writings of Cyrus. This is what he says, without any battle. He entered the town sparing any calamity. I returned to sacred cities on the other side of the, the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time, and established them for permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all the former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. And so this was the agenda of Cyrus. Uh, those, the people whom he conquered, he would send them back to their separate places and have them built their sanctuaries. This is what happened to the Hebrew people, right? When Cyrus took over, a decree was made which allowed the remnants of Judah to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and also the wall. And so we find evidence of this in this cylinder. And so these are all extra biblical information. This is not from the Bible, but from artifacts, archaeological artifacts that, that uh, show us, that tell us um, with using the words of pagans that the events of the Bible actually did uh, take place. Now, like what is mentioned here, there was no battle. They took over without really having any battle, okay? So they take over Babylon, and eventually Cyrus claims the title king of Babylon. He made his son Cambyses uh, as his viceroy in Babylon in 538 BC. Things remained peaceful until his death in 522 BC. So Babylon is not destroyed. It's conquered, but Babylon is not destroyed. So I wanted you to take note of that. And eventually Persia is overtaken by Greece, led by Alexander the Great. We talked about this before in Daniel chapter 1. On October the 1st, 331 BC, Alexander uh, the Great was welcomed by the Babylonians when he entered the city after his victory over the Medes at uh, Gogamela. He was acclaimed king, and on his return from the east, 
Nine years later, he planned extensive renovations, including the creation of a port for the city large enough for 1,000 warships. So uh, Alexander the Great did not destroy Babylon, right? Um, Cyrus did not destroy Babylon. In fact, they made Babylon their capital. So Babylon was not destroyed. However, Yahuwah God is not finished with Babylon. <laughs> no, not yet. Why are we sure? Well, it turns out in the book of Isaiah 13, 6 down to 9, wail for the day of Yahuwah is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Her face is aflame. See, the day of Yahuwah is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. And so the Bible says, you know, prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 13 are about the events associated with the day of Yahuwah. The day of Yahuwah is basically the day of judgment. And so around that time or when the day of judgment is near, something will happen. And when we look at what will happen, according to Isaiah, we're going to read Isaiah 13, 14, Jeremiah 50, and connect it to Revelation. And we will see what is in store for Babylon. This is why one of the things we need to do as people of God today is to look not only at what is happening in Israel, but also what is happening in Babylon. Okay, Because something is going to happen to Babylon before the day of Yahuwah comes. What will happen to Babylon? Again, from the context, we read 6 to 9. Let's keep reading 1922. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' prime, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. No Arab, Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will rest his flocks there. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious, luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. So one of the markers, one of the signs of the end times, of the day of Yahuwah, right, is what will happen to Babylon. What's going to happen to Babylon? It's going to be overthrown by God, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And when we go back to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened? It was completely leveled, right? It was burning fire and sulfur and brimstone. And it's the, the uh, blast was so horrific. It was so comprehensive and complete. It could no longer be inhabited. Even today, it cannot be inhabited. And so that's what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Has this happened already to Babylon? Not yet. Because there are those who say, well, what this is talking about, the conquer, the, the, the destruction of Babylon. No, Babylon was not destroyed. This is why Cyrus lived there. Uh, Alexander the Great lived there. Saddam Hussein had a palace there, right? And people today still go to Babylon. Babylon is being inhabited by people today. But the Bible says time will come when it will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed with fire and brimstone. And how will it be destroyed? With fire and brimstone. Jeremiah 50, 39 to 40. Therefore, the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it, 
it shall be inhabited no more forever. Okay, it will not be inhabited anymore, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says Yahuwah, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. And so this hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. Time will come when Babylon will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, and no one can live in that place anymore. How will this happen? Let's keep reading. Jeremiah, you have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you are not aware. You have been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. Yahuwah has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation. In for this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. And so the Bible speaks about the land of the Chaldeans. This is Babylon. This is physical Babylon. Something's going to happen to physical Babylon. What's going to happen? It's going to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And how will it be destroyed? With weapons of indignation from the armory. You know what that? And so we're talking about weapons that will destroy Babylon. What kind of weapons? Let's read verse 9. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations. I want to pause there for a while. Persia. When they conquered Babylon, were they an assembly of many nations? No. Bible says, in the future, right before the dreadful day of Yahuwah will come, in the future, something's going to happen to Babylon. There's going to be an assembly of many and great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there, she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain. And so the weapons mentioned in Jeremiah 50 that will cause the ruin of, of uh, Babylon to, to render it like Sodom and Gomorrah are described by Jeremiah as arrows. Arrows like those of an expert warrior. According to the Hebrew word, let's take a look at the Hebrew word of arrows, an expert warrior. For arrows, it is kites. Literally, shot from engine of war or shot from a bow by hand, according to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, it is a missile or anything thrown such as an arrow or javelin as of a mighty expert. And so the arrow mentioned there represents a missile. Interesting, isn't it? An ar uh, from the we uh, weapons in the armory, weapons of indignation that will bring about conflagration against Babylon. And how about the expert, the mighty expert? The Hebrew word is sakal. It means to be prudent, be circumspect, wisely, understand, prosper, uh, septuagint, intelligent, possessing understanding. And according to Hebrew scholars, as of a mighty expert applies to the arrow itself. The arrow itself can, uh, contains intelligence. And so in the NAS translation, their arrows will be like an expert warrior. So the arrows themselves will be like an expert warrior who does not return empty-handed. Their arrows will be like skilled warriors who do not return empty-handed. So the phrase, as of a mighty expert, applies to the arrows themselves. And so the arrows will have intelligence. In other words, it is like smart weapons. What does that tell you? 
Jeremiah is describing probably modern missiles, modern weaponry. And this is why we believe, you know, before the dreadful day of Yahuwah comes, something's going to happen to Babylon. And what's going to happen to Babylon is these missiles described by the prophet Jeremiah as arrows that is likened to an expert warrior will devastate um, Babylon. And because of the devastation, what will be what will happen to Babylon? Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says Yahuwah. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says Yahuwah. And so the decimation of Babylon will be so complete you will not, it will not be inhabited anymore, number one. And number two, you cannot even find a stone that you can use to rebuild something. You cannot rebuild it anymore. That's how complete the decimation of Babylon is going to be. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a nuclear holocaust, doesn't it? I mean, it's going to completely annihilate uh, Babylon. And so, for, this tells us, I don't know if you can see it, somehow, some way, Babylon is going to rise, right? It's going to rise, and it's going to play some kind of role in the end times. What could that be? Well, let's connect Isaiah and Jeremiah to Revelation just briefly, because we're going to talk more about Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Revelation when we go to the topic of Revelation uh, when we get there. But let's go ahead and jump to Revelation really fast, in Revelation 17, 5 to 6. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with blood, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yahusha. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And so the Bible speaks about a mystery, Babylon. We studied this before, right? Mystery Babylon. What is that referring to? Who is the one who has the name Mystery Babylon. The Bible says her, her forehead, a name was written. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots. What is this harlot? Revelation 17, 1 to 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so this uh, named Great Babylon is associated with a harlot. The harlot is sitting on Babylon and has the name Great Babylon. And this harlot is sitting on many waters. What does the many waters mean? Revelation 17, 15 and 16. And he said to me, the waters which you saw that where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. And so the harlot word, uh, that sits on many waters, the, the waters represents multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so we're speaking about a religion here that's going to be worldwide and powerful, right? And we studied this before. And there was an author, a researcher by the name of Alexander Hislop, and he authored a book entitled The Two Babylons. If you get a chance, uh, go to Kindle and get these books and read through it. You're going to be astounded by the connections made concerning Babylon and Catholicism. Okay, 
because according to his research, which was also used by Brother Irani Manala, uh, this was one of the books that he used, uh, and we do recommend that you read it. You're going to be astounded because when you look at the connections, Catholicism has borrowed from Babylon the elements of their religion. This is why if you look at the uh, cover of one of the books there, the two Babylons, it has Mother Mary, picture of Jesus. This is a Babylonian symbol. And many of the, I, the concepts of Babylon was adopted and it became Christianized and it led to Catholicism. Trinity, for example, if you read this book, you will have different versions of the Trinity and they all lead to uh, the, the, the Trinity that was invented by Catholicism. And you have the mother Mary and the baby Jesus picture that also is from Babylon. That's why she's called the mother of harlots. And if you look at the, if you look at the book, the book will show you that all the occultic practices that we find today, it's orig it originated in Babylon. For example, Tammuz, the son of Nimrod and his queen, uh, Semiramis, was identified with the Babylonian sun god and worshiped following the winter of solstice about December 22. The Babylonian worship of Ishtar, the golden egg of Astarte, and the fertility rites of spring give us Easter and so on. So many of the festivals that we find in Catholicism today is Babylon's attempt to replace the festivals of Yahuwah Abba that was given to Moses in the Torah. Okay, so we find, if you read that book, you'll be astounded by the connections made that indeed uh, the mother of harlots of Babylon being spoken of, mystery Babylon was fulfilled in Catholicism. Okay, uh, but the Bible's not finished yet. That's not the completeness of Babylon, because if you read Revelation 18, 9 to 10, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning standing in the distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour, your judgment has come. So the Bible says Babylon is going to be destroyed. It's going to burn. Is it metaphorical? Is it physical? It could be both. That's the thing. Not only is it metaphorically suggest that pointing to Catholicism, but there could be a physical Babylon as alluded to by Isaiah and Jeremiah. And could it be possible that the beast and the antichrist that will precede the coming of Yahusha, the return of Yahusha, could it be that their main headquarters will be in Babylon? It could be. We don't know. Because this is what it says in Revelation 18, 19, 21. They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she's made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. And so the Bible, uh, Apostle John in Revelation 18, speaks about the destruction of Babylon in the same spirit as it was destroyed, as depicted in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And so we have here a juxta juxtaposition of two great cities. In the Holy Bible, we have two cities. We have Jerusalem and we have Babylon. Jerusalem is a city of God, Babylon, the city of man, a paradigm 
that pervades the entire Bible, literally and metaphorically. Babylon is mentioned over 300 times in the Bible. It is alluded to three times in Christ's genealogy. It was the capital of the first world dictator. Who is that? Nimrod. And is destined to be the capital of the last world dictator. So it's connected somehow. This Babylon in 17 and 18, 17 is depicted as a great whore and 18 as a great city. Okay, so we'll talk more about uh, this Babylon mentioned in Revelation 17, 18. This is why it's so important that we discuss Daniel first. And later on, we're going to look at all the details of how this plays out in the end times. Because one thing is sure, we have to be aware of the clues that's being put out there because we can see already the writing on the wall for the whole world, for the inhabitants of the world. In Isaiah 24, one to six, see Yahuwah is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. And so the Bible says something's going to happen to the world. When Yahuwah says enough is enough, something's going to happen to the world that will affect not just a majority, not just the minority, but everyone. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the priest or you can be the people worship, uh, being led by the priest. You can be a master, you can be a servant. It doesn't matter. Time will come when everyone will be affected by what's going to happen in the world. Why? Verse 3, the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. Yahuwah has spoken this word. That's when he will write on the wall, enough is enough. The earth dries up and withers. The word languishes and withers. And exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up, and very few are left. What is the root cause of why Yahuwah has written on the wall, it's going to be a curse for the earth? It's because the people have defiled the, the earth because they have disobeyed what? What does it say? What do they disobey? The laws of God. That's not surprising for the people who don't even believe in God. That's not surprising for people who are not religious. But it's surprising because there are people who call themselves religious, yet they say things like the Sabbath is an abomination of God. They say things like the laws of God has been abolished or is obsolete. By doing so, they're defiling the earth. And the Bible says enough is enough. The curse consumes the earth. Very few are going to be left. This is happening now. And it's time for us to wake up, right? And what must we do so that we don't end up becoming like Belshazzar during the days of Daniel? In Luke 21, 34 to 36, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that they will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. According to our Lord Yahusha himself, what must we do now that we live in the last days? What must we do so that we will not be caught unaware? 
we must not be like Belshazzar. Remember Belshazzar? He was about to be destroyed by, by Persia, but he didn't care, right? And so he was caught unaware. We too could be like him. So what do we need to do? We have to watch out. What does it mean to watch out? Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness. Isn't this what Belshazzar did? He had problems, but he tried to escape these problems by partying, carousing, and drunkenness. And it's really, really very, very sad. This is how many people try to solve their problems. They want to drink their problems away. They want to escape their problems instead of facing them. That's not the way to do it. The way to face our problems is by repentance. This is what Yahushua wants us to do. To repent, to watch out, so that we can be strong enough as we pray to Yahuwah Abba, to Yahushua HaMashiach, so that we can be strong enough to overcome, to escape the upcoming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. This is what we need to do. But according to scriptures, not many are going to be able to do that. How many? How many will heed these instructions of our King? Let's read the final passage of our studies today, the book of Joel 2, 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all, the, on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also all my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahuwah. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, as Yahuwah has said, among the remnant whom Yahuwah calls. There's always going to be a remnant. When it comes to deliverance, it's not the majority, it's the minority. But who among the minority? Those whom Yahuwah calls. Those who respond to the call of Yahuwah, how can we recognize them? They work and speak in the spirit of Yahuwah. Because before that day comes, what will Yahuwah Abba do? He will pour out his spirit because he wants people to be saved. And how can they be saved? By getting to know Yahuwah. That's what it means. When it says they call on the name of Yahuwah, when it says they call on the name of Yahuwah, it's not simply pronouncing the name. It's good to pronounce the name, yes. It's good to use the name, but that's not what it's all about. It's about establishing a relationship with Yahuwah Abba. That's why the spirit is given. The spirit is given because Yahuwah wants us to have the relationship with him, a close relationship with him, calling him Abba. Calling him Yahuwah Allahim, the one who will deliver and save us. Brethren, the only way to respond to the problems of life that's taking place all over the world is to repent and to return to Yahuwah Abba. Right now, his arms are open. Let us run to his arms. Let us be embraced by our loving Allahim through his son, Yahusha HaMashiach. Let us take this opportunity. Let's not waste it. Let's not say, I'll have another chance. What if we don't? What if we see the writing on the wall? Brethren, while we have the opportunity, let us repent and return to Yahuwah our God. Call upon him through his son's name, Yahushua HaMashiach. 
and be embraced by the promised salvation. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Loving Father, yes. almighty and gracious Yahuwah Elohim, yes. you are the most high God. You are the one that we worship, Amen. almighty Yahuwah. Thank you for giving us the opportunity yes. to fellowship with you yes. as your sons and daughters. Amen. We can see the signs taking place, yes. how you have cast judgment upon the world. Yes. Fewer and fewer remain alive. Help us, we who are the remnants of your people, yes. to pledge our loyalty to you, yes. that no matter what happens, we will cling to you. Yes. We will glorify you. Yes. We will worship you with all of our ability. Ah. Help us and keep us safe. When troubles come along the way, yes. we know they are to be expected. But we also know you are there for your people. Yes. That when we cry out to you, you will respond favorably to us. And so loving Abba, with one voice as we pray together, we call upon you now. Yes. Remember your people. Yes. Strengthen us once again. Yes. That we will overcome the trials in our life. Amen. Our loving Mashiach Yahushua. Yes. How we long to be with you. Your presence strengthens us. Yes. It's what we are thirsty for. This yes. is why servants of yours. Who come from different places of the world. Yes. Some of them are watching this video learning from you, yes. learning from Abba, yes. despite the hours of the day, some spending late nights, sacrificing much, yes. because they want to be with you, loving Mashiach, yes. we want to honor you, bless us with wisdom, yes. bless us with strength, help us to overcome the temptations of the evil one. Amen. Remember our loved ones, yes. members of our family, that we will take seriously the yes. message that you give to your servants. Help us to heed them with all yes. of our hearts, to stand with conviction, yes. to obey you, loving Mashiach, all the days of our life. Amen. We cannot wait for you to return. And so we watch and prepare for that day. Yes. We will look up. To you, O loving Mashiach, yes. may you please remember us when you return from heaven. May you please bless us that we can all receive your promised salvation. Amen. Thank you, loving Abba, for listening to our prayers tonight. Yes. May you heal those who are sick among us yes. and strengthen us once again. Amen. We ask and beg everything, loving Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.